0: And we are recording. All right, so we are here with uh, Brother Adam Alselbrook of University Lodge 141 in Seattle, Washington. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: All right, now before uh, we get started, I do have to make a couple of announcements. First, I gotta say a big thank you to University Lodge and uh, your secretary in particular. Uh, I've been in contact with your lodge I've had the worshipful master, worship brother Ben Stagner on the podcast. And today in the mail, I received this. It's gonna be awesome. University Lodge, very cool logo, by the way. University 141 Lodge uh koozie. And a letter from your brother secretary. Um, saying we hope you enjoy many delicious beverages with it which i intend to so thank you so much for that
1: (laughs) you're very you're very welcome
0: and uh the other thing is i mentioned this at the start of all my podcasts i'm going to put the flyer up on the screen december 30th december 31st and january 1st square Encompass is sponsoring uh blood clinics at canadian blood services Anybody who donates on those days will be eligible to win prizes donated by its current coming promotions, including a scale model of our beautiful Windsor Masonic Temple. So if you haven't done so yet and you live in the Windsor or Essex area, please book an appointment to donate blood. The need is as great as ever, especially under current circumstances. And the process is very safe. They're taking all the precautions to make sure um, everybody is as safe as possible. And with that, once again, welcome, Brother Al Thank you very much for having me. What's uh, before we get started on your lodge? What's uh, what's behind you? Is that your is that your Masonic temple? In which case, very cool. <laughs> <laughs> you no,
1: know, actually, uh, what what is featured on the screen behind me, uh, virtually, of course, uh, is actually a uh, part of the. Murals on the walls of our lodge room, which were painted by uh, Seattle artist um, uh, Ernest Norling in 1950, and Norling was, uh, you know, a noted uh, Pacific Northwest artist uh, and muralist, and. Uh, According to a art historian uh, who is knowledgeable of Norling's work, the, the murals on all four walls of our room are the largest existing uh, Norling murals that remain in their original location uh, anywhere. Um, you know, he, uh, he was prolific, but unfortunately, some of his works have been lost over time. Uh, so we're very fortunate to have a very, very beautiful lodge room uh, that uh, we paid a, a very small pittance for. Uh, it was uh, $2,000 in 1950, uh, which uh, even in 1950 money <laughs> translated today with inflation. It's just really, I think we got a bargain, uh, but they're, they're very realistic. And they depict, uh, you know, of course, in the eastern part of the room, they depict King Solomon's temple. And then on the other three walls, they depict other scenes, you know, from uh, different major periods of architectural history, you know, in kind of a middle, kind of a vague Middle Eastern, uh, uh, you know, historic context. So we're very, we're very lucky to have them.
0: Now, you, uh, you came to my attention through your secretary and your worshipful master in particular, um, they advised that you had a lot of information about the history of University Lodge. One thing I love doing is is when, when I can to travel and visit Masonic temples and lodges in person to get a chance to tour them and learn about their history. Uh, but over the last several months, I've had the opportunity to focus do, on doing it more through Virtually through Zoom and, and uh, go to meeting, things like that. Um, so, I guess my, my question is before we go into the actual history of your lo- temple and your lodge itself, is, you know, I don't know if Seattle has gone through the same lockdowns as as Windsor and other places, but have you found, um, you know, to share this information, to share this history, have you been using Zoom and, and other virtual means, and have you found that's increased over, over the last few months? Uh,
1: it, you know, absolutely. Uh, I've actually, uh, I first gave a presentation of the kind of my findings of the history of the lodge. Uh, I, I gave the first presentation was really well. Actually, excuse me. I've done three presentations on the history of the lodge the first the first was for a uh, event held by Historic Seattle uh, which is a local historic preservation organization here in Seattle and that was back in uh, they had an open house at our lodge back in I believe it was May of 2019 and you know so in pre-COVID days uh, and you know they I had a members event there, members meeting, and also uh, you know members of our lodge were on hand to give a history of the lodge. So the first presentation of the history of the building I gave at, at that event. The, then over a period of time, uh, I compiled much more research on the history of the building, uh, which actually I just recently uh, self-published uh, to my website. Uh, I operate my own website where I can, you know, exercise total control over over what I post. And uh, that is uh, adamalsobrook.net and it's A-D-A-M-A-L-S-O-B-R-O-O-K.net. And so all of my research and writing, you know, on various Masonic building topics and principally just Seattle and Washington State right now, but eventually might be looking at some other locations uh, that was posted on there and so that that paper that research paper which i really uh, kind of finished over this past summer was presented in, uh, was presented to the lodge in a zoom meeting in september of this year and after that presentation i was then asked by the brethren of st john's lodge number 9 here in seattle which is the oldest lodge in seattle they were chartered in 1860 and uh, you know the oldest lodge in Seattle. They were actual. They were our mother sponsor lodge. Uh, you know when we, uh, when University Lodge sought uh, dispensation and a charter from the from the Grand Lodge of Washington in 1904. <laughs> um, and and so you know being. Presenting on Zoom, you know, has its challenges. Uh, you know, it's uh, when you just present your slideshow in Zoom. Uh, I've, I've found that if I ever do it again, I would do it as a webinar, uh, so that you can just give your presentation and then people can ask questions uh, rather than just, uh, you know, uh, kind of the, yeah, the 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 regular format for Zoom is not necessarily conducive to uh, to smooth. Uh, smooth presentations um, but there have there has been much much more interest uh, in, uh, in a wide variety of topics you know beyond just having social events on zoom
0: you know so. you mentioned uh, you know your research what were your your sources um, for for finding out about the history of University Lodge
1: oh gosh um, I was fortunate to have done most of the most of the history uh, prior to a lot of the local archives and institutions closing uh, related to the ongoing pandemic, and uh, the sources ranged from, you know, the records and the minutes uh, of the lodge, you know, held in our archive, and then also newspapers, you know, so the Seattle Times and the Seattle Post-Intelligencer, which were the two newspapers in Seattle, uh, both of which still operate in various forms. And then also uh, building trade publications uh, were especially helpful in in determining, uh, you know, when, uh, you know, when the building permit was issued and who was the actual designer of the the building and, and, you know, when it was built and things of that nature. And so, you know, we were also fortunate to have, <clears throat> we don't have the original drawings of the building from 1909, but we do have a, a set, a small set of drawings, uh, sketches really, uh, blueprints that were prepared by a worshipful brother, uh, Harry E. Hudson, who was a noted Seattle architect, very prolific, did a lot of houses. Uh, he was also kind of a, a you know, early design build kind of guy um, and uh, was worshipful master of our lodge in 1921. And uh, so we have some drawings of his from the early 1920s, you know, that we were able to, to kind of compare against, you know, building permit records and things like that. So it, 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 it really was a deep dive, um, you know, using not only just local archives, In particular, the Museum of History and Industry here in Seattle was particularly helpful. Uh, They pulled in their collections uh, the earliest uh, historic photograph that we have of our building, which was taken uh, in 1910, uh, not long after it was finished. And we were very fortunate to be able to obtain the rights to reproduce that photograph, both in our presentations uh, and uh, in in my written works that are published online. But uh, MOHA has been uh, tremendous, uh, always have been tremendous and they continually support my other research efforts uh, in Masonic buildings in Seattle. So uh, really left no stone unturned um, while doing the research on this building.
0: All right, so let's go into the, uh, the actual research itself and the actual um, uh, findings. So uh, was your research focused on the, the building itself or the Masonic Lodge within or a combination of both? Where would you say the, the majority of the focus was?
1: Oh, uh, very interesting question. Uh, it, it really started out as being uh, an investigation to answer Uh, a question uh, that I had, which was who designed and who constructed the building. And then by the time uh, the research uh, (laughs) progressed and the writing progressed, uh, it it became much more of a a kind of an interplay between the history of the lodge and also the, the history of the building itself. And so it, it was really kind of, it, it ended up being in an, an, a very organic process, um, but uh, I'd, I'd say that it started out about the building and then, uh, and then ended up being a little bit about both.
0: So do you want to uh, kind of take us through the, the, your findings starting with, however you want you want to start, but starting with, you know, the designer and then kind of moving forward to the, uh, the highlights?
1: Yes, let me uh, let me bring up my cheat sheet. <laughs> um, just one second, please. Well, I must I must apologize. I've uh, I I'm an architectural historian. It, in my day job and so uh sometimes it's a little bit difficult to uh to shift gears
0: <laughs> no worries but so, we've got a lot of uh um I've, I've done a lot of videos about the architecture and, and the heritage of the windsor masonic temple we've we viewed the the original blueprints from the 1920s our building was built in 1921 i've also done a lot of Interviews with historians, with uh, architects and heritage uh, specialists, preservation specialists. You know, Masonic temples are, you know, the, the golden age of Masonic temple building was 1870 to 1930. So those Masonic temples that have managed to remain, a lot of them unfortunately were sold off over the years. But those that managed to continue being Masonic temples, I mean, they're all kind of struggling from the same issues related to upkeep and just the challenges that come with the heritage property.
1: Right, exactly. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not familiar with with the Windsor Temple. Um, it's, uh, it's a building that I'm not familiar with. Do, do you remember who the architect was of the Windsor Temple?
0: Yeah, a gentleman named uh, James Carlisle Pennington. He was a, uh, a Mason, a pretty prolific Mason in, in the Windsor-Essex area. He also designed actually our neighbors, the hotel do hospital. He designed the uh, later additions to that. A lot of municipal buildings, a lot of houses. Um, yeah. So he, he designed it for uh, the cost of, at the time was 200,000. So extrapolate that you're talking in the 20, I think it was 21 million in today's dollars. Um, yeah. We've got, uh, I'll put the links up in this video right now, but we've also got uh you know a few videos about the architecture of the building. I'll, I'll send them your way. Thank you. <laughs>
1: uh, I actually do. I do recognize the name of Bennington. Um, you know there was a there was a lot of interplay uh, between the architects uh, in the Pacific Northwest, and it wasn't just limited to Canada. In the United States, it's like there were you, there were architects in the United States who practiced in Canada, and vice versa. Uh, it was a very interesting you know kind of time period uh, where. The border was much more fluid uh, than, than what it currently uh, is is today. Um, but the uh, the origins of our uh, excuse me let me just find my bookmark um, the the first discussions about forming a masonic lodge in the university district of Seattle, which is uh, where our lodge is still located. Those discussions began in the summer of 1904, and a group of our charter members, a small group, a small group uh, of of masons who were members uh, of St. John's and uh, mostly of St. John's, but of some of the other lodges in Seattle, met in the real estate office of one of the brethren of the lodge, uh, Worshipful Brother Fred Rude, uh, who was a real estate uh, real estate agent and developer. Uh, principally in uh, what was then known as University Station just west of the University of Washington. And one of the the first newspaper announcements that we were able to find uh, was actually from uh, August 31st, 1904, uh, when it was announced that a group of masons in the university district uh, wanted to create uh, a new lodge and uh, receive a dispensation. And ultimately uh, our we received our dispensation uh, in, um, <clears throat> excuse me, late 1904, <clears throat> excuse me, and then we received our charter uh, in June 1905, and what was really fascinating is, is that um, at the time, well up until fairly recently, uh, the Grand Lodge of Washington also uh, was in charge not only of uh, head dominion over Uh, Masonic lodges in Washington State, but also in Alaska. Uh, So, you know, they had charge of lodges in Alaska. And at the same meeting of the Grand Lodge in June of 1905, uh, the numbering of our lodge and Anvil Lodge in Nome, Alaska, was actually confused. Uh, Our Grand Secretary at the time was, was really ill and uh, ultimately died later in 1905, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, and so there was a little bit of confusion over our numbering. And so we were in the University Lodge was initially number 140 and then Anvil Lodge was 141 but ultimately those numbers were flipped so that Anvil ended up being 140 and we ended up being 141. And of course, when, uh, uh, you know when the Alaska created their Grand Lodge uh, I believe it was in the late 1990s or the early 2000s. Uh, it, all the lodges were renumbered uh, in the order uh, that they were chartered up there. And so initially for the, for the first few years that our lodge met, we met in a rented hall on the second floor of a space known as Sherricks Hall. Excuse me, and Sherricks Hall was located uh, at the southwest corner of uh, what is now Northeast 42nd Street and University Way in the University District, a few blocks south of where we currently uh, have our lodge. And uh, we met there uh, until, you know, just all the various uh, organizations. Sherricks Hall was, was one of the only uh, large meeting spaces in University station. And so, you know, the lodge, you know, had to had to share with a lot of other organizations uh, in that meeting space. And so, you know, very quickly discussion discussions began about the possibility of constructing um, an actual lodge building to house University Lodge number 141. And so those discussions continued, you know, from from you know, the early days, like 1907 uh, into 1908. And then in, uh, in October of 1908, the Brethren actually acquired a property uh, in, universe, in the University Station University District and uh, located at the southeast corner of Northeast 45th Street and uh, University Way. And that was that was where that was selected as the site for uh, for our new building, and uh, the uh, the plans. It, the newspaper announcement said that the plans had not been announced yet at that time, and there was actually like relatively little, uh, you know, really covered in the newspapers, uh, you know, at all, um, you know. Seattle Times Seattle post intelligence as far as I can tell, you know, I've not been able to locate any mention of the actual construction of the building until after it was long completed and uh, My my thinking, you know, for for why this was the case is uh, due to the, the 1909 Alaska Yukon Pacific exposition which took place on what is now the grounds in the University of Washington And that World's Fair took place. And there was a uh, a building called the Masonic Building at the Alaska-Yukon Pacific Exposition. And our building was also called the Masonic Building. And so I believe that our Masonic Building got completely overshadowed by the much more prominent uh, but temporary (laughs) Masonic Building that was built at the 1909 AYPE, and so it it, it really, it was an initial stumbling block to the research to just kind of hit this wall and realize, you know, when I was looking at the newspapers that they were talking about a building that was not our building, it was another building entirely, and so that, that ultimately, I split off that as a whole separate project because it just turned into a rabbit hole uh, that that needed further exploration. So the Masonic building at the 1909 Alaska-Yukon Pacific Exposition got split off into its own research effort while I continued to concentrate on the research efforts on our building. And so ultimately uh, I discovered through building permit records that uh, uh, a Norwegian immigrant uh, by the name of John Schultz uh, designed and constructed our building uh, that we use to this day. And it's a load-bearing brick masonry building uh, with a wood frame structure uh, on the interior. And uh, Schultz was uh, what would best be described in today's terminology as a structural engineer. Um, he uh, had received his education in, uh, in Norway and immigrated to the United States in 1890, you know worked in a, a variety of roles, uh, including uh, for a period of time for the American Bridge Company, which you know, constructed massive You know steel bridges uh, for railroads and highways in the early 20th century, and he ended up moving to the West Coast by the early 1900s. Settled first in San Francisco, and and following the San Francisco earthquake of April 1906, he was instrumental in the rebuilding of San Francisco. uh, You know, you know, creating you know fireproof and earthquake resistant buildings, uh, you know, tall buildings, very large buildings. And he ended up uh, coming to Seattle in 1907 uh, where he first worked for the city of Seattle building department uh, as uh, the assistant superintendent of buildings. And uh, what was really interesting is, and I've, I've recently done some additional research into the building department, but the building department uh, when, when Schultz joined the building department as assistant superintendent of buildings, the building department was headed by an architect by the name of uh, William Grant, uh, who was actually uh, a Mason. Um, and a uh, you know, very prominent Mason, uh, charter member of the Nile Shrine, you know, very, very active in uh, Seattle Masonic circles and later actually designed a Masonic temple uh, in Shoreline uh, in the early 1920s. But so Schultz ended up working in the same department as Grant. What's really interesting is, is that uh, I have uncovered no uh, indication that Schultz was a Mason. Um, I've been in contact with one of his descendants who lives in in Southern California, uh, who, when she, uh, when I contacted her through Ancestry, she was completely over the moon uh, because uh, nobody in, the fa- in their family had known anything about their ancestors' activities in Seattle and all the buildings that he worked on here and also in San Francisco. Um, but he, as far as I can tell, he was not a Mason. Uh, and there's really no indication, there's no uh, evidence or proof uh, as to how he came to be associated with the University Lodge number 141. And uh, how how he ended up creating their building, and so it just kind of seems like a matter of expediency. Uh, you know, they needed a building constructed, and he was a very competent designer. Um, I, I can make all sorts of speculation about how that happened, but unfortunately, I can't prove any of it. Um, I think we all know how the how the Masonic telegraph works uh, and, and how we communicate amongst ourselves. So, you know, it's highly likely, you know, that. Someone talked to someone, talked to someone, and he ended up doing the building. But uh, it was constructed very rapidly. It was constructed you know, for a, a, a very reasonable amount of money, uh, which uh, is certainly not the case when it comes to construction these days. And uh, let's see if I can find that number. <clears throat> I think it was something like $18,000 or something like that. It was. Very, very small number. Um, Oh, $12,000. It was constructed for $12,000. It was the building permit valuation, which equates to $328,000 in today's money. Um, Unfortunately, uh, the city of Seattle building department operations at that time, they discarded all the building plans after a year and uh, only retained a, a small handful of the building plans of some of the more prominent buildings in Seattle. And so unfortunately, we don't have a copy of the original plans. Um, but uh, the, building, the building was complete in time uh, for uh, the first meeting to take place in the building on October 18th, 1909. And what's really interesting is, is that uh, I, I'm still trying to discover if our building was actually ever formally dedicated. Um, it appears that it may not have actually ever been formally dedicated. And it also does not have a cornerstone, uh, which cornerstones are usually uh, a very, uh, a very important part of Masonic buildings. Uh, in many cases, uh, when possible, they, the cornerstone is placed in the same position on the building. Uh, you know, from building to building. So it's really kind of interesting, uh, you know, the the building was finished and just put into use almost immediately uh, with no discussion. Uh, The the first newspaper reference to the building actually being used and open, uh, the first reference that I came across in the newspaper was actually uh, about... Another fraternal organization uh, using the building, uh, you know, because the Order of the Eastern Star used it, uh, and also uh, the uh, what is now a very politically incorrect uh, fraternal order. Uh, I think it was the Order of Red Men, um, you know, which uh, uh, also met in the building uh, initially. But uh, we were very fortunate, you know, uh, to have. <clears throat> Excuse me, we were very fortunate to have that early photograph of the building, you know, that shows what the building looked like, uh, you know, not long after it was finished. Uh, and so that, that photo was just uh, really, it provided a wealth of information about, you know, some of the other, some of the other things you know, that went on with the building. Uh, the University Station Branch Post Office was located on the ground floor of our building. Uh, from 1909 until 1914, you know, and so that U.S. government lease—you know—the the power of that lease helped us finance the original construction of the building. Um, and you know, so there was retail spaces and a post office on the ground floor, and then uh, on the second floor, uh, uh, doctors and dentists uh, ended up having some offices up there. Uh, to kind of help defray the, the ongoing operating costs of the building. Um, and so, you know, it really started out as just trying to find out who the architect and builder of the building was. And they were one and the same. It was this John Schultz gentleman. Uh, and ultimately, he ended up leaving Seattle not long after our building was finished uh, and had a very long career in Southern California uh, in Long Beach and uh, in the Venice area around Los Angeles. And uh, ultimately uh, they ended up, the, the family changed their name in 1918 because it sounded too German. And so uh, you know, there was a lot of anti-German sentiment related to World War One. And uh, he died in the early 1930s. Um, but uh, it's, it, it's a complete mystery uh, as to how he, came to be the architect and builder of our watch um, especially when it's like compared against all the other research that I've been doing on other masonic buildings in Seattle and then you know that they they were designed by you know architects who were also masons um, you know probably the most prominent example is the is the the main the original main masonic temple uh, that was located you know at harvard and pine uh, in what is now the capitol hill neighborhood and that was designed by the architects uh, saunders and lawton and uh, the competition for that building that was held in uh, i believe it was 1910 or 1911 that competition was only open to masonic architects um, and so you know i believe it was something like 12 or 13 architects and architecture firms competed against each other for that so you know in in kind of summary i mean the building our building kind of ended up being just even though it has ended up being extremely significant as what i believe what my research indicates is the second oldest purpose-built masonic lodge building in seattle um you know there, there's uh, there's other older ones in king county you know where seattle is located but You know, within the city limits of Seattle, we have the second oldest uh, Masonic Lodge building. And it just really got kind of lost in the shuffle is probably the best way to describe it. There was just so much going on in Seattle at the time period and so much uh, going on in, you know, Freemasonry in general that it just kind of, uh, that early history just got lost by the wayside. So it really ended up being just a reclamation of of that history uh, rediscovery and reclamation of that history um, but uh, it ended up being i think much more fascinating than anybody initially believed um,
0: because um, how did this goes back to something you thought you mentioned way at the start <laughs>
1: <But> <laughs> sorry that was
0: really cool i didn't want to interrupt you at the time i just kept it in my head i don't even know if this like if if you would have came across this in your research, but you mentioned that at the time uh, in 1904, 19, you know, early 20th century, Grand Lodge of Washington was also uh, covered uh, Alaska and Masonic Lodges in Alaska. How, like, did you come across the information just about how how it was able to, to, like the, the, uh, the communications from Seattle to were people sending you know was Canada's then people go through were, were they taking votes like how did just it, we have a hard enough time communicating between lodges that meet in the same building <laughs> let alone across <laughs> a country was there any information about and is that does that have anything to do with the numbers number issue just the length of time it would take to get a message back and forth I would imagine would be imagine it'd be very interesting. You know the situation.
1: Yeah, it's um, it, it is uh, it is something that I initially started poking around uh, in, and I recently discovered that uh, that had already been very extensively researched by the current grand historian of the Grand Lodge of Alaska. Um, I believe uh, that's most worshipful brother. I think it's John Adamson. I might be misquoting his name, but I, uh, regardless, he he wrote a truly magisterial doorstop of a study of the Masonic lodge, the Masonic clubs and lodges in Alaska from the first. Uh, days as a territory after the United States purchased it from Russia. And I, I wanna say that his work is something like 500 pages long, uh, you know, fully, fully illustrated, heavily heavily researched, you know, cited and whatnot. But, um, and so he, I ended up coming across his work, which unfortunately uh, I'm currently unable to obtain through interlibrary loan thanks to the pandemic, but I look forward to eventually being able to review his full work and sit down and actually use it as a source. But to answer your question, um, I believe that uh, the, the communication between uh, the Grand Lodge of Washington, which was based in Olympia um, and later Tacoma, uh, that communication with this far off distant outpost, you know, on the northern frontier, um, I believe the communication was very, very, very difficult. <laughs> and I think that it, it was a contributing factor to, you know, the, the the numbering mistake, you know, between Anvil Lodge and University Lodge. I think that, you know, letters took a while, uh, you know, communication was by ship. You were able to send... There was not telephone service, but you could send telegrams, um, you know, and cablegrams. You know, there was a, a military cable that connected you know, Seattle with uh, various ports in Alaska, and um, that was the early communication system. was was through a very expensive. Uh, I mean, it was. You know, kind of the equivalent of like Federal Express, you know, today FedEx, you know, where you're spending, you know, maybe a hundred dollars, you know, to get an overnight package somewhere. It's kind of the equivalent of that. Um, but the you know communication was extremely difficult. Um, but the the vast wealth of some of the 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 Alaska lodges, um, the Anvil Lodge, their annual dues. Uh, adjusted for inflation to twenty twenty dollars, twenty twenty U.S. dollars, their annual dues were almost three thousand dollars a year, um, and and they had a very very wealthy, <laughs> very very wealthy group of brethren who were all like merchants and gold miners. Um, but was
0: was Alaska a wealthy place at the time? I always I always imagine Alaska as being kind of a rugged not so well i guess you know but yukon's out there Yukon gold so i guess yeah i guess was it a wealthy place
1: it was it was um it was i wouldn't say that it was necessarily you know wealthy for everybody i would say you know just like uh any other economic system you have the haves and the have-nots um and I imagine that the earlier you were able to go up there and establish your gold claim, and you know, hopefully it uh, it turned out to you know be a paying claim, uh, you know, those gold uh, prospectors uh, you know made money, but I actually think that it was the merchants, uh, you know, the businessmen and the merchants. And the real estate agents who, you know, did all the transactions and the support for the mining operations, I think they actually ended up being uh, much more wealthier, uh, you know, because they could charge just obscene prices uh, for the most basic essentials, Um, you know, because every prospector going into the Yukon had to carry a year's worth of supplies to support one person, you know. And so you had to carry all of that you know, over the, the infamous uh, past that, you know, the name escapes me right now. Um, but uh, wealthy, you know, there were certainly wealthy people in Alaska, but, uh, you know, the, the various fraternal orders like the Masons, uh, the Alaska Brotherhood, excuse me, the Arctic Brotherhood, and uh, the fraternal order of the Eagles, uh, all built relatively large buildings, the, the Elks in particular built massive
0: uh, fraternal buildings in Alaska. Um,
1: so Have you def- chance- there
0: definitely was wealth, yeah. Have you had the chance to, to visit? I, I would love to to see some Alaska Masonic temples. Uh, so
1: unfortunately-
0: well, uh, you can't now, but- <laughs> Well, unfortunately you can't
1: now, but unfortunately, uh, you can't. <laughs> but, uh, in many cases, uh, they, they, most of their buildings, uh, most of their early Masonic buildings no longer exist. Um, I believe that the oldest existing Masonic building uh, in Alaska is located in Skagway. Um, they were chartered very, very early on. I forget the exact date. I think it was 1900 or 1901. Uh, but the Skagway Lodge still meets in their original building. Um, there's and there's a couple of other uh, lodges, but you know many of them uh, have been lost to, you know, fires. Uh, uh, you know, the lodge in Fairbanks uh, was lost several years ago because snow caved in the roof and it destroyed half the building, and they had to demolish it. Um, but uh, there there are a handful of existing historic lodges that are left um, and I in part of my research uh, I went down a rabbit hole and I started collecting you know some postcard images uh, of some of the Alaska lodges um, and uh, you know some of them were very very prominent buildings um, and uh, there are there is one w- I believe one of the most prominent historic Masonic lodge buildings that they have uh, is in, you know, but it's a government office building now. <laughs> so um, it is it is something that I'm doing more research on uh, to really see, you know, uh, when we are able to travel again, uh, you know, what, what we can go see in
0: Alaska. <laughs> what is the um was that kind of one of your 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 motivations for joining Freemasonry is the because it seems like the historic the not so much Alaska necessarily, but just the historic nature of of the craft and the the buildings, especially with your profession. And it sounds like it's something that you have really um you know, dedicated yourself to is is this research on the historical Historical buildings and their their the architects and the people behind them was that an initial motivation for joining or is that something that you discovered after joining?
1: It it, it was actually something that I'd always been I'd always been interested in. Um, I I one of my previous uh, positions uh, I worked for the state historic preservation office in in Texas and uh, several of uh, I visited several uh, Masonic buildings in Texas and, and was always intrigued about the, the sheer breadth of, you know, building types. And, you know, they came in all shapes and sizes and, you know, they were grand and, you know, they were plain or grand or just, you know, just this wide variety of architectural styles. And, and that was definitely an initial fascination. Um, and, Continue to be a fascination when, you know, because I'm I'm a relatively recent, uh, uh, you know, addition to the ranks of the brethren of University Lodge Number 141. I was only I was only uh, raised uh, to the third degree in uh, April of 2019, you know. So you know, re- came to it relatively late in life, but the the architecture definitely uh, it's one of the things that's really come to fascinate me is how much we really don't know about it. Um, there, there is one book, uh, that I've come across that specifically analyzes from an architectural history point of view, uh, Masonic temples and, uh, William, believe, uh, William Moore. Uh, yes, yes. And so what's really interesting is, is that of course, you know, he like many other, uh, believe his background was uh he either was or still is an archivist
0: at the grand lodge of new york's archive and so he has all this i'm sorry go ahead he I, he's uh he's been a guest on my podcast <laughs> adam uh <laughs> I, I interviewed him he uh, is not a mason himself it's interesting he just was uh so right now he's with boston university he is the director of the um the director of the New England uh, New England and Boston History Department hmm. the director of it and a uh, history, history professor. Um, so he wasn't actually a, a Mason himself, but he was able to connect with the Grand Lodge of New York and receive permission to go through their archives and gather um, the information necessary for his work still on a mason even after which i was surprised at oftentimes even in your case right a lot of times people will start with an interest in some particular aspect of freemasonry whether it's the architecture or the they could have a family connection or they could be interested in the history or some of the more you know woo woo aspects of it that type of thing <laughs> and they'll end up joining joining for that reason he himself never joined but he he still does research on the topic and we had a great podcast interview. Talked to him for, I think at the time, he might have been my longest interview. He was um, in close to close to an hour. But yeah, uh, William Moore, great guy, great book, recommended to all the Masons. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, his focus was primarily New York, but right. he still had a lot of insights, even into the Windsor Masonic Temple and Masonic Temples in general.
1: And, you know, one of the things that, that I've really... You know, just since doing the research on our building, uh, you know, was really it. it really, unfortunately, uh, started you know kind of an obsession, uh, a little bit of an of an obsession about uh, you know collecting you know imagery related to you know these buildings, um, and you know I. I, I've completely lost count of how many postcards uh,
0: I've acquired, um, but the, the ones about the one, what, what's that? <laughs> what was it about postcards? I, they, I, the Windsor Masonic Temple had a postcard. Um, it, yeah, I, I've noticed, it seems like a lot of these Masonic temples, when, when they were, were looking at um, possible uh, souvenirs or, or swag to, to give out postcards seems to be a pretty common thing I've noticed. They're not as cool as, uh, as drink koozies, but they're still... <laughs> it just seems like it's such a, a, usual, a pretty common... Was it just easy to produce or...? Uh,
1: you know, it, it, it was really easy to produce. Uh, you know, there were... Kind of the golden age of postcards was really... Uh, you know, in the first couple of decades of the of the 20th century, uh, it might even be like, you know, yeah, I'd say about 1900 and 1920 was like really kind of the height when they became really, really artistic. Um, and actually, I mean, quite an amazing document um, of uh, of you know some buildings that you know we wouldn't otherwise have documentation of, you know, because they've either been lost over the years or the interiors in particular, you know, have been, you know, so so changed over time and put into other uses. And so they were a very popular souvenir. Um, you know, I've seen type I've seen types where, you know, it's a photographic reproduction of the building plans, uh, you know, and, and the, the, the postcards were sold as a fundraiser to go toward the building funds. Uh, I've I've seen uh, you know some like you mentioned that were you know sold as souvenirs. Uh, there's one postcard that I have in my collection of the uh, the Yakima, Washington Masonic Temple, which is this wedding cake of an early 20th century extravaganza
0: of a like eight-story Masonic building. It's just it's incredible. What about? Um, uh... This is something I've, I've been kind of <clears throat> on a lot lately uh, for my own selfish reasons, because I've got some that I'm I'm uh, selling through and Compass for the podcast. But, um, you know, scale, model, reproduction. Of temples. Have you managed to come across any of those?
1: Oh, uh, the actual like uh, like the mini the like the miniature buildings uh, that used to be produced. Um, I yeah. actually I have not. I think the only one might there might have been some for the George Washington Memorial uh, in Alexandria, Virginia, but uh, I, I have not actually come across any. Um,
0: well. Wow. Because I might as well take a minute to show it off. (laughs) Hey, sweet there. Just just because I'm proud of them. Because nobody seems to do it, and I don't understand why. Um, Oh, look at that! This is the Windsor Masonic Temple. Oh, look at that! Seven by seven, and actually, it's uh, hollow underneath, and the windows are are see-through, so it can light up from the inside.
1: Oh, that's incredible! That's that's absolutely incredible.
0: Produced by Global, produced by produced by a Global Three D Arts in a uh, in Kansas. If anybody wants them, uh, it's through uh, the Square Encompass Patreon page. Um, but also, if anybody just if anybody's watching this who is with the Masonic Temple, and if you have a unique building, um, I would. I'd recommend looking into it because it's uh, there's a lot of interest for it and a lot of people are, are looking at getting one. And it's just a really cool, I don't know, it seems to me like a, a no-brainer. If you're building it, especially in your own city, like if your Masonic temple has any kind of um, public space for weddings, for receptions, for dances, you know, people might want... A memento of the building that they got married in or you know had a high school dancing or something to that effect just seems like something and every time i check with the masonic temple they tell me that they've never done it themselves so i can't have been the first one to think of it i don't think it's so. uh, i
1: i think i think it's a great idea
0: um
1: i and the model looks awesome uh it it, it reminds me very much of of seattle's old central masonic temple uh which still exists unfortunately uh it's closed now it's it's a theater and it's closed i've always wanted to see the inside of it but uh no i mean that's that's pretty great i think i think it's all about exploring um you know i i think a lot of us are just kind of naturally curious um and uh i mean i mean some of the i mean some of the architecture of some of these buildings is just not sure it might be interfering with my camera
0: got a bit of shine oh
1: there we go all right yeah. it's all like right. Some, some of the, some of these buildings are just like if you propose this now like i mean would anybody construct it i mean it's just it's
0: wild right i mean some of the, some of them are just really off the wall um, no i agree there's so <laughs> many that are it's uh yeah it's i think and i'm guessing you you would agree or just i think we really take these buildings for granted yes Um, yeah i I constantly hear you know it's it's the people not the building but i'm not so sure that's completely true it doesn't have to be one or the other it can be both are important right and both both matter
1: i i I definitely agree with you um and i you know i don't want to uh, go too far down that particular rabbit hole, but you bring up a very, very good point. And it's that so many of... I'm trying to find one of the recent acquisitions. It's a really good one. Um, I definitely uh, agree with you that I think that we've given really short shrift um, you know, to some of these buildings. And, uh, you know... This for instance, uh, is a picture of the interior of the lodge room of that Yakima Masonic temple that I was talking about, which fortunately is a hotel now. The building was safe, but it's not a Masonic building anymore. Um, But I mean, some of the the architectural masterpieces that we're really dealing with are really quite stunning. Um, These buildings also used to be, you know, just landmarks within their community. And they weren't just used by masons. They were used by all sorts of other organizations because typically, uh, in many cases, it, w- it was either the Masonic building or the Odd Hall or, you know, maybe one other fraternal order that had a, bu- had a building, and it was the largest meeting space, you know, where a group of people could gather. Um, and I-, I definitely agree with you that I think that much has been said about how, you know, the, the concept of a lodge is greater, uh, you know, it's just the people and it doesn't really have anything to do with the building. And, and actually, I would, I would say, particularly in, in this ongoing pandemic, I believe that the, the role of our buildings uh, is even more important than ever, um, simply because uh, virtual meeting can only go so far. Um, you know, we, we can't do the esoteric work, um, you know, so we can, you know, pretty much just keep it purely social. Um, but uh, I, I believe we're, we all... Uh, are looking forward to going back into our respective, you know, lodges, you know, be they, you know, humble, uh, you know, uh, simple structures uh, like some of the ones, some of the historic uh, landmarks here in King County, uh, which are still operated as Masonic lodges, uh, or some of the grander uh, edifices like your uh, your one in Windsor. Um, but I, I, I just think that. Uh, unfortunately buildings are expensive um, and buildings need maintenance and they need, you know, seismic upgrades, particularly on the West coast. And it's just the, the problems are are very large and costly. Um, And even fairly recently, it's like our, one of our grand lodge officers, you know, once again, broached the topic of potentially combining, you know, botched buildings and selling off real estate, um, you know, just for that very purpose. But, just think that you know with each building that we lose i think we lose more and more of our collective history uh, of uh of north american freemasonry i mean it's not just canadian it's not just you know it's it's canada it's the united states alaska you know hawaii um, you know it's just they're they're not building the <laughs> they're not building buildings like this anymore is probably and the best way to sum it up
0: <laughs> and there's such equity in, in the buildings too is you know it's not it's it doesn't have to be you know wherever a, a masonic wherever a, a a lodge meets wherever their temple is whether it's you know a grand edifice like the windsor masonic temple or uh um, Goderich which it kind of owns a building and it meets on the top floor and then it's got um, shop space down below to, you know, temples lodges that they meet in some tiny little, you know, uh, like Port Stanley, it's on the second floor of a building and, you know, 50 people and you were, I'm pretty sure in violation of a fire code. I remember it was there oh, yeah. for yeah. Was 200 <laughs> people. But the thing is, once you, once you lose wherever it is you're meeting, you can't get it back. And do you really want to, you know, all the equity, all the money that was put into it, first of all, are you ever gonna be able to get that back in in a sale? Which I'd highly question. And also, um, you then have to try to rebuild, you know, your memories. People come to Masonic Temple for years because it's uh, a Masonic home. Are they gonna feel the same way going to a brand new building? you know, it's one thing for them to move to a new city for work or whatever it is, and then seek out a new Masonic home there. But to have your Masonic home moved on you, you know, even if you say at the time you think it might be a good idea, are you going to feel that way when you have to go to this new place you're not used to, you know? It just seems to me there's so many more downsides than upsides.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, you know, I've, I mean, one of the reasons why my research has been so difficult, I mean, you know, kind of my ongoing research efforts, you know, one of the reasons it's so difficult is because in some cases the records don't exist and in some cases the buildings no longer exist. Uh, You know, so I can't, I can't go and visit them, Um, but I I definitely would agree with you. I think that, uh, you know, some of the images that I've come across, um, you know, one of my favorite ones, uh, you know, is a postcard. Of uh, of the Masonic Temple in Redfield, South Dakota, from 1909, which was built the same year as ours, and uh, the gentleman wrote on the back, "This is the temple I helped to build last fall," and it's you know this beautiful brick building, uh, and you know obviously you know pride, you know there's there's pride that went into that, uh, you know ma- uh, you know masons being not just speculative but also operative masons. But yeah, I I think that we 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 are told to preserve the ancient landmarks, but I'm not sure if we've done a great job of actually preserving our physical landmarks.
0: <laughs> I I agree completely. I, I worry just in Masonically in general speaking for the not not that I'm anybody of importance, but speaking for the craft as as a whole, you know, to see the the number of buildings that have been lost. Um, new York, Chicago, um, are the two that come to mind most obviously. Toronto, uh, here in Canada, um, Winnipeg, if I recall correctly. Um, to see, you know, the 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 history that gets lost and then becomes, you know, and and new new tenants to these buildings will make some efforts to preserve some of the history. I know in Chicago, for example, in the, the Masonic temple that was in the loop, um, it's now a theater, uh, the Oriental Theater. They do have the, you know, they kept the square compasses on the facade. So you, you can see them if you're outside, but then you go to the self Masonic temple and it's torn down, right? Um, it's just an empty lot now. So there's just such a risk of, of you know, trying to trying to move on when we have such beautiful and amazing properties already. This is something I, it is kind of a hobby horse of mine. I worry about it. I'm not an architect by any means, but I love, you know, I can recognize a beautiful building when I see it and recognize the importance of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and that's, I, I, I totally agree. And, and it really is, you know, just out of my own curiosity, you know, as a historic architect, as an architectural historian, you know, and through you know my website, you know, where I try to push out as much research as I can. It's to push it out. It's to it's to really gather it up and to put it out there before it's lost. Um, and uh, I, I mean, especially you know the pandemic. I mean, has really just kind of underscored how difficult communication is and how difficult it is accessing you know archives and resources. So um, I. I, I think that we're kind of at a critical point right now, uh, where I think there's a lot of discussion about you know what the physical environment is going to look like for a lot of our lodges. So it's a it's a challenge that lodges, both large and small, face.
0: I've got a uh, a significant number of of interviews and podcasts on the the on this topic. I'll send them send them your way certainly, uh, and I'll put them up. On the corner of the screen, I got um, you saw the interview with William Moore, which was uh, one I really enjoyed, the original blueprints from the Masonic Temple, um, which I reviewed. I also spoke with uh, a gentleman from Edmonton Lodge in Edmonton, Alberta. Uh, he, he's with Boreas uh, Architectural and Design, and he does heritage restoration in Alberta. Uh, we talked about a lot of these same things and then working with National Trust and APT the American, what was it, the Association for Preservation Te- Technologies? I went yeah. to their uh, virtual conference and did some videos about about that. Um, but yeah, it's great. It's it's always nice to see meet another brother who's as interested or as passionate about these buildings because I agree with you one hundred percent. What do you think? Like imagining. Uh, you know, putting on putting on our crazy hat. Where do you where do you see some some solutions to some of, of these potential problems? Putting aside maybe the pandemic for, for a minute, because that presents it's, it's you know. But even before the pandemic, there were there were challenges that we were with heritage properties, with older properties. Um, you know, the, I've heard arguments about. Dues and assessments, and them being too low versus lowering them to attract new membership. I've heard, you know, I've heard lots of different discussion on these problems. Do you have any any thoughts on on solutions? And by all means, the crazier the better, because that's more fun <laughs> for a podcast. You know,
1: I, I I think that you know it it definitely does depend on you know each individual property and I think you know each individual property uh, you know has kind of its own you know quirks and foibles there's there's challenges that we face on the west coast that aren't really faced in other parts of the country uh, the the biggest problem that we face on the west coast is of course uh, unreinforced masonry buildings uh, which is of particular concern to us because you know our buildings are assembly spaces and so, uh, you know, they are hazardous buildings. Um, it, it, it's kind of interesting, uh, you know, that you asked that question uh, because uh, our our Lodge Building Association right now is looking at uh, potentially, a potential seismic retrofit of our building. And of course the topic of how to pay for it, you know, comes up. Some, some of my ideas, you know, really, uh, extends to just kind of the structural framework of how real estate is treated uh, within you know, Freemasonry. Uh, I'm not entirely sure uh, how it is typically handled in Canada uh, but it, here in the United States uh, frequently uh, and this may even vary quite a bit you know from Grand Lodge to Grand Lodge but you know I speaking for what you know the Grand Lodge of Washington, there's the Lodge as a corporate entity and then there's the building association as a separate corporate entity that is comprised of members from the lodge and perhaps other organizations that meet in that building and so you have the quote unquote temple board and then you have you know the the actual you know masons that are meeting in that space i think some i think some of my ideas are um, are really number one we need to undertake a survey of of what our resources are uh, at you know perhaps the masonic district level <clears throat> excuse me and perhaps at kind of the regional grand Lodge level uh you know to really to, to think strategically about you know which geographic centers are going to continue to be ge- geographic centers of, of an area and where people are going to be able to, to commute to and from relatively easily um you know so i think number one is to identify what we have um and that's, you know, part of the work that I'm doing is just kind of putting this information out there and, you know, seeing who picks it up and runs with it. But I think that, you know, there's some buildings that we have that are uh, of varying levels of significance, okay? You know, uh, some are very, very significant and some perhaps not so significant. And so, you know, using the results of that survey to really kind of think strategically about, okay, We understand that we've got some smaller lodges that need to consolidate, bring them together into one facility. Um, And then number two is to look at the form that those facilities take. And I think that, you know, just the, particularly in some of the busier cities on the west coast, uh, you know, the the two and three story building with the retail on the ground floor and the lodge above. I don't think that it can bring in enough income just as a as a standalone retail entity, uh, helping to pay for the building. I think that the cost is just too great. And so, what I think, you know, kind of pie in the sky, you know, and what I've what I've talked about with some of the, the brethren of our lodge is the, the the possibility of looking a little bit bigger. And then if we, you know, if we're going to do a seismic retrofit of the building, it's like, you know, could we maybe talk with a developer who's experienced in redeveloping properties and look at some of the, you know, look at possibly expanding the footprint of some of our facilities, you know, so that you can, you know, create a viable, excuse me, a viable real estate redevelopment and rehabilitation of the building. Um, But, you know, it, it really... There has to be a long-term income producer for the building. And I think that some sort of mixed use scenario, I think could end up being uh, much more sustainable. Um, It's not a new discussion. Uh, Our lodge actually talked about doing this back in the mid 1960s, ultimately didn't do it. Well, we were gonna build uh, a large, lodge, and then high-rise apartment building, you know, so that we would have had high ri- a high-rise apartment building uh, to bring in income, uh, you know, there in the university district. So, you know, that, that's kind of my thinking is, is that, you know, initially just this two-step approach. Number one, identify what we have, and then number two, you know, how can we best utilize the assets that we have? Um, and I think number number three on that is you know just the execution and the moving forward of these plans, and and really just I think I think one of the challenges that you know each of these individual temple boards and these lodges face at, at kind of the granular lodge level is the fact that they don't they don't know they don't know who to turn to they don't know who to trust uh, you know they've got questions that they need answered and. You know, typically, you know, uh, the, the the people who they ask these questions of, you know, want to charge large amounts of money to do studies and all this stuff, and it's like there's just not a centralized, you know, kind of think tank, knowledge bank, uh, you know, brain trust uh, to really kind of help out a lot of these a lot of these organizations, and they just kind of flail around, uh, you know, through no fault of their own they've got great intentions, they want to do right by the building. They just don't know how to proceed. They don't have the technical expertise uh, and the financial expertise. Um, So I think that's kind of my three-step pie in the sky, you know, throw it out there and see what sticks kind of approach.
0: (laughs) Well, I very much hope that that sticks myself because uh, I agree with with that. Yeah, I think You know, now is the time to be, especially now that our meetings are, are, are our in-person meetings are suspended. I mean, now is the time to be reevaluating and thinking more, maybe outside the box. Why not? You know, there's, there's never any benefit in my opinion to, to saying no to uh, an idea. You always want to say yes. And then, you know, during the researching phase you figure out how can it work how won't it work and you modify it but the initial you know i I think the, the old joke about the past master right that's not how we did it in my day uh that can apply to the buildings too right sometimes you want to at least say okay we'll consider this and then you can always when it's just the idea stage you can always modify as necessary but if you don't start being a bit more outside the box then just we we all see the trend lines, you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I, I, th- I I absolutely agree. I think I think one of the one of the really telling arguments that I always hear, you know, when uh, when people talk about uh, you know one build, you know, meeting at one building over meeting at another building, and they always say, well, you know, parking is just so hard. Parking is so hard. You know, it's like there's no place to park, and it's like, and I just shake my head, and I'm like, we like University Lodge meets one block away from a light rail station that's going to open, you know, here uh, within the next few months, (laughs) you know, it's like, you could you could get from there to any other part of the city and you don't have to worry about parking a car. Uh, And, and, and the way that, uh, you know, some of, some of these guys uh, uh, take some hospitality after the meetings, they don't have any business driving afterwards anyway. Um, But anyway, I mean, it's just, it's,
0: uh, no, I've, I've, yeah, I know, I know what you're saying for sure on that one.
1: <laughs> Not all of us have cars, you know, it's like, you know, some people actually do utilize public transportation, but.
0: Uh, yeah. It just goes back to just the times, right? Like, uh, yeah. you say the Windsor Masonic temple is, is located right. You know, the bus stops right, right outside the door. You, you, you step out and you're there. Um, yeah. So I, I agree completely. It's about looking at what you've got and how to make it work. Um, one more time, because I love showing this off. This is what Scoring Compass has, if you're interested in it. Through oh, uh, cool. through the Patreon page, I can have it sent right to you. And actually, the cool thing is, uh, right now, so this is just one of the standard models. So it's got the sign, see if you can see it, where it says Masonic Temple. Nice, nice, um, nice, yeah. And then it's very small, but it's actually got the phone number here where, where you can book, so if you- <laughs> Nice but I can actually get a custom, uh, something written on the sign that's custom. So I had a a wife purchase one for her husband uh, and she wrote uh, uh, love you forever on the sign. That's, I guess, they're they're saying. So you can get a custom, something written custom on the sign if you don't want it to say Masonic Temple. Uh, Love you, mom and dad, or whatever it is. So yeah, global 3D arts, I'll give them a shout out again. But I'm sure like... I'm sure most cities, Seattle would have something like a 3D printing shop or something that could, it's just a matter of getting, and it sounds like you've done a lot of the work, you know, it's just a matter of getting those original blueprints and taking a sufficient number of pictures. And they could. Uh, I am going to remind everybody else, also please hit the subscribe button, the like button, leave a comment, all that good stuff. And with that, Brother Adam, also, Brooke, thank you so much. I very much enjoyed our conversation.
1: Thank you, worshipful Brother Adamson.